0: passage is going to be taken from Matthew 5 13 we're going to sort of uh, recapture just a moment what Mike spoke about last week for just a second but we're going to talk about engaging the hostile world that we live in some of you may contend with the fact that we live in a hostile world well let me remind you of the words of Jesus I'm going to read them to you they're not on your screen but in John chapter 15 beginning with verse 18 these are his words if the world hates you Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would, have, would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. In Luke 21, verse 10, Jesus says, at another occasion, Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness What kind of relationship does that sound like that we have with the world from the very words of Jesus himself? Not a very conducive world, is it? It's a world filled with conflict, animosity, anger, resentment, and even hatred. The world that we live in, while though we live in the United States and we feel pretty safe, nearly 100,000 different people across the nation die every year because of their faith in Christ. We live in a hostile world. Jesus, after delivering the Beatitudes, reminded us of that in one of the Beatitudes. And at the end of that, he tells us, how now do we relate to the world that we live in? Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, it says, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. I want to stop and say, really? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness? You mean I'm going to be blessed by him when I'm persecuted? Persecution doesn't, doesn't feel like a blessing at the time, does it? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How do we relate then to this hostile world? He tells his disciples... In verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy that is ours to stand in honor of your word. Bless not only the reading of your word, but the study of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. How many of you have genuinely been persecuted, or do you feel like you've been persecuted for your faith so far as a Christian? Anybody here really ever felt any kind of persecution whatsoever? I mean, look around. Not a single hand went up, and I mentioned that almost 100,000 people across the globe on an annual basis die because they believe in Jesus. That's hard for us to swallow. It's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to understand because we live in the United States of America where we have freedoms that many parts of the world do not enjoy. And it's hard for us to relate to passages when we hear about persecution. And when we hear about persecution, we somehow think, well, okay, maybe I've been persecuted somewhat or a little bit by the world because I've taken a stand for this truth or a stand for this principle, or I've not laughed at that joke, or I've not gone to that party, or I've not said yes to that invitation to temptation. And as a result, we have in some ways, I think, might be able to relate a little bit to this whole concept called persecution. Persecution, while very rare in the United States, is I think sometimes a possibility not a rarity. Some of you may not, I know of people who have not received bonuses or have not received advancements in their career because they have chosen not to live according to a certain lifestyle or standard in their company. And as a result of that, they have been shunned from others because of their faith. I know a guy one time who lost his job simply because he would not do anything unethical in his business practice for this company. And they fired him. And so while we may have some minute types of persecution here i'm convinced that in the years to come it's going to get worse for even those of us who are in the united states of america our freedoms are slowly eroding little by little we are losing them and in order to us for us to relate somehow to the society around us i'm finding the church is becoming more acclimated by our culture than the church influencing the culture in which we live the church today has lost its saltiness. We have lost our influence and we have lost our impact. And we're seeing that even as a denomination of Southern Baptists, baptisms are down, attendance is down. Things are beginning to look a little bit troublesome for us as a denomination. And the reality is while in some areas churches may be flourishing, many, many churches are dying and going out of existence as we speak, hundreds a year we're losing more churches than we are gaining and we're eventually going to see in the united states of america i'm convinced an even more secular culture than we who have grown up in a very christian culture are going to be accustomed to and are going to be familiar with and so as a result of that i think persecution is going to rise and as persecution will arise and it will how do you relate to that how do you relate to a world who hates you how do you become engaged with a world that is out to kill you. Literally, the world is not our friend. And yet we try to somehow compromise and negotiate with the world and try to live in harmony with them and try not to find ways to, to encourage or to, uh, to, be animo- to, 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 to cause animosity or to create some sort of hostile relationship. And, and we kind of have a tendency, if we're not careful, to sort of remain silent And to just sort of coward and to just back off and just let it be. Well, that's not the way to relate to our culture. That's not the way Jesus wants his disciples to engage in our society. Jesus says to his disciples that we are to be salts of the earth, even to his disciples nearly 2,000 years ago. And that, I believe, is a relationship to the world that has never changed and will never change until Christ returns. So let's take a look at the text and we're going to dissect this very short sentence and we're going to look at it word per word. And just because it's one verse doesn't mean it's going to be a short message. So buckle up. Mike, you preached about 50 minutes last week, right? I appreciate that. I told him to at least go that because I'm going to go 30 today. It'll make me look much better than he did last week. By the way, Mike did a great job, didn't you think, last week? (laughs) Had Had me a little bit worried, man, there for a minute. I thought, you know, they might prefer you over me which I do anyway. So, let's look at the text this morning. Let's look at the call of Christ in Matthew 5:13, the call of Christ to his disciples, the call. Notice he says in the text, he says in the verse, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. That's the call. The call is you are the salt of the earth. Now this call is directed to his disciples. And we see that in the little three-letter word, you. The word you is a word in which Jesus is now narrowing the focus and he's addressing primarily that, that few, minuscule, small body of people up to this point, remember he's early on in his ministry, who have decided that he is the Messiah and they're going to completely sell out to him. And so he, he is directing now this admonition to those who are completely sold out that he's the Messiah and they have given their all to follow him. They don't completely understand everything. There's still some confusion and some distortion and some uncertainty and even some insecurity. And yet this very small band of believers is being addressed by Christ and is saying now that I've sort of painted this broad picture of what I deserve and demand from my disciples if they are to be blessed and and now in that blessing this is how you're gonna relate to the world you're gonna be persecuted how now do we relate to the world how do those who are sold out to me relate to the world my disciples are going to relate to the world in this way he's narrowing the focus upon those of us who are Christ followers you so it's directed to his disciples secondly it is defined <coughs> excuse me in Christ it is defined in Christ now he defines this concept here in the word are you are. Now that's an interesting word. It's, it's here intentional. Um, <laughs> the Word of God is not some uh, quickly written, uh, just some br- brush of the stroke of the pen, without really strategically thinking about how each, each word fits in a sentence. I believe the divine will of God in appointing the men that he inspired to write this, th- these verses and all of the words that we have are words from the Lord. And God doesn't do anything accidental. He is very intentional. He is very deliberate. And every single word that you hold in your hand, every word, has importance and it has impact and it has meaning for us as a disciple. So he says, you are And so I scratched my head, and I said, what does it mean, are? What does that one word mean, are? And as I began to study this word, I learned that what he's describing to his disciples, you disciples are salt. And I, and I got to thinking about it. And what he's saying and suggesting here is this, that the doing is not as important as the becoming. Get this. This is huge. Because most of us, especially men, we're about doing. You take away what we do you take away our identity you take away our conversations you take away our relationships because we're doers we don't sit around and talk about feelings now do we guys do we guys okay I got a few guys awake out there now if you're one of those guys that does bully for you I mean it's a good thing for your wife but we don't normally do that do we and so we don't talk a lot about Becoming we talk a lot about doing in the Christian life. There are a lot of churches and a lot of uh, Things that emphasize the doing of the Christian life and the doing is important It was so much of a conflict and controversy in the early church that James had to address it about faith and works and faith And works and all this controversy and so sometimes I think we get the cart before we get the horse We talk about the doing we emphasize the doing we 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 enlist for the doing, but we sometimes overlook the becoming. And he's saying here, you are, and the are is about becoming. And what is the becoming here that he's addressing? He's talking about us becoming one in Christ. And the fact that as we become one in Christ, as we place our faith and trust in him, you now are in him as he was the salt of the earth. In other words, we, like Jesus, who was the salt in his day, we are the salt in our day. And we are to become the salt of the earth. That's not about doing, it's about becoming. Because in the becoming will then come the doing. But you've got to become first. Get our focus off of the doing and the becoming, and what will follow will be the doing. Because the more I become like him, and the more I am in him, the more I will do for him. The more potency I will have in my influence, and in my effect, in my culture, in my community, in my workplace, in my family, in my relationships, as I become in Christ more like him. So there's a becoming here. So what are we becoming? You are, notice he says, the salt. And so we've seen that the call is directed to his discipleship. It is defined in Christ, but it is definitive in its purpose. What is the purpose? I'm going to trip on this thing before it kills me eventually. Let's fix that next time. i got a couple of scissors or something. I think that's what would have worked. Anyway, I'm sorry. That just is in my way. Notice he says, you are the salt. Now, don't overlook the word the. It's It's a strategic word, and I'm not going to repeat myself. Every word has meaning. You are the. What does he mean by the Let me tell you what he means. You are the one and only. You are the salt. You are the only hope that he has. There is no other method. There is no other person. There is no other group of people other than his disciples and his church. You are his hope. You are the salt. He hasn't chosen anyone else. Now imagine Jesus coming to earth, born of a virgin, spending 33 and a half years, three and a half years, pouring into these 12 guys and then leaving them and saying, you're the salt I have poured into you. You are the ones that I have called and I have selected. Now you are the hope of the world. There is no other method, no other means, no other person or people that I have chosen other than you. And I think it's hard for us here today to understand as we look in the mirror to think that I am the one that he has called and chosen to be his salt. But you individually are the one that he chose. He chose you intentionally deliberately sought you out in your lostness and in your damnation and brought you unto himself. And now he has placed you in this beautiful relationship where you are now the salt of the earth, the salt. So let's look then at the decisive of this objective. What's the goal of us becoming salt. What does it mean to be salt? He said, okay, you're the salt. I'm the salt. We're the salt and the salt shaker. There are, I don't know if you've noticed today and how many of you put salt on your eggs or I was at, at a wedding this uh, weekend and we had a rehearsal on uh, uh, Friday night and we were at Paul's house. Larry, I see you sitting by yourself. Tell Paul, I told him I was going to mention him. And I'm eating food in Paul's house. He's Him and Linda, and I'm sitting at the counter. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's food from Chipotle. And so it's, that's great food, man. As far as I'm concerned, I'm glad I went. And uh, after you know it's after rehearsal dinner. And so I had my Chipotle ready. And Paul looks at me and he says, would you like some salt with that? I said, what? He said, would you like some salt with that? And Linda said, he puts salt on everything. How many of you do that? How many of you taste your food and then put salt on it? How many of you put salt on it before you taste your food? Wow. Why do we put salt on our food? I mean, did you know even chocolate chip cookies require salt? I mean, somebody said it does. Let me go check it out. We require a lot of salt, and while probably most Americans eat more salt than we need, your body is designed to need salt, and the world that we live in needs salt, and it needs us. For Jesus says, we are the salt. You are the salt. What does it mean to be the salt? What's the objective of our being salt? Well, I think if you take a look at the word salt, and I want you to write this down, it means that you are to to be a preservative. I mean, you know anything about salt in Jesus' day, they didn't have refrigeration like we have today, and so they threw salt on the meat, rubbed it in there real good. Some of you do this for for barbecuing and all that kind of stuff, and they put it in a liquid form, a liquid deal, and so that it would be preserved for quite some time. Without salt, I mean, how would you market your meat product? How would you fix it? How would you cook it? And so it preserved the meat as it was. What does that mean to be salt and to be a preservative? Well, I think he's calling us here in this text very simply this way. He's calling us to preserve the life that God intended before sin. You see, in the fall of man in Genesis 1 and 2, there's something unique that happened around chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, standing there at the edge of the garden, saw that forbidden fruit. Eve plucked it, gave it to him. They ate it and sin entered the world. And from that moment on, life was intended by the Father when he created what we know today to be our world. is now a fallen world. It's a decaying world. It's a a corrupt world. And so, (coughs) over time, God has had several opportunities to purify the earth, has he not? He did it through Noah. He did it through Sodom and Gomorrah. But finally, in the New Testament, he did it through Jesus. And Jesus was sent, was born of a virgin, and died on a cross for sins that he didn't commit, so that through faith in him, we might be purified. We might be cleansed of sin, so that we then can now live out the life that I believe, the abundant life that Christ intended for his disciples to live. And so in the world that we live in, we are to be an examples of the abundant life that we have in Christ. And the world is supposed to look at us and go, wow, that's how life should be. Let me ask you something. Do they do that? Do they do that? Are we living our lives in such a way that, that they, they look at us and they see that we are so Salty. that that we are living out the reality of the abundant life in Christ. There's another aspect about salt. Not only is it a preservative, but I think it's also a deterrent to the corruption in the world. Now, most of us like this more than the other, because this one's a little easier. We get to be a little more self-righteous because this is where we get to throw stones and point out sins and, and rally and, and hit the abortionist and the, lesbians and the gays and all of that, while we don't think we have a responsibility to live an abundant life. So I mentioned the abundant life first, okay? But now let's talk about this aspect of of deterrent to sin. You know, we are in this world to be a deterrent to sin. What does it mean by that? You know, it's hard for us to force an irreligious, unbelieving, degenerate world to live our moral values. But yet, we are to be a deterrent because we live in a moral and a spiritual decaying community. We do. The world is, is, is decaying, it, it's putrid, it stinks of sin. And yet, we are to, to be those that come in and rally against that. How do we do that? Let me give you a quick illustration. A couple of years ago, I was playing golf with a guy. I, I don't play golf anymore, I haven't played a couple of years. I gave Aaron my clubs when I was uh, last summer or summer before last when I was up in Canada. I felt kind of sorry for him for his golf clubs. He's playing with his father in law, so I gave him mine. And I haven't had golf clubs since, so I haven't played in about two years. But back when I did play on a regular basis, I decided I need some time alone. You know what I mean? Just some time to myself. And so um, I had some children at home at the time, and I just needed to go out in the You know, just golf to me is fun. I don't get irritated or I don't throw clubs or anything like that. I just have a good time. And I like golf because it's a a game of grace. Every hole you get to start over what I think about it so if you get a 14 on one hole I'm on the next one I get to start all over I'm down to zero again so I don't count every hole I just don't, don't do that so uh, anyway so I decided to go play golf that, that uh, morning and, and I got there and I paid and I got up to the first tee and I realized it was busy that day and there was a threesome and there was me and then a, a foursome came behind me and I'm like well this is going to be awkward and uh, so then another guy came up and he said I'm by myself can I play with you I said sure so about the third or fourth hole, as we teed off and went through a couple of holes, you know, we had some conversations and it always comes boils down to this. What do you do for a living? ever been around to that? Well, I'm a pastor, so I hate that question because I know the minute I'm going to tell them, everything's going to change. So what do I say? Life coach? Do I say psychiatrist? You know, some people I deal with are pretty loony, <laughs> uh, and besides, most psychiatrists are loony, too. That's why they take psychiatry, and loony people have a people people's foot. So that's good. But, no, no I <coughs> don't need to do that. So uh, I just said, I'll be honest. I said, you know, I'm a pastor at such-and-such such church. I his countenance changed, man. You know why? For about four holes, he's been cussing up a storm. <laughs> and he used the name of Jesus a few times, and it wasn't in a very good way. And he realized, oops, And he might have been a deacon at the Methodist church. I don't know. Oh, I picked on the Methodist. I'm sorry. I just came out. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Maybe he was the associate pastor at the Lutheran church. I don't know. But anyway, um, so uh, we got to the ninth hole, and we went in, you know, to to water up with cold water and, you know, to wipe the sweat off, and we were going to man out the back 10. When I got to the 10th, you know, to tee off, guess what? He wasn't there. I waited a few minutes. He wasn't there. went to the clubhouse. He wasn't there. I don't know. I got it. He didn't want to be around me. Have you ever been in a place where police officers walk in? The mood changes. People get, why is that? It's an influence. Nobody breaks the law when police officers are there. When you came to church this morning and you saw a police officer, you automatically slowed down. You see, when we're around in our workplace, when we're, we're around where we go to school, when we're around where we recreate, we should have such a presence that when people sin, they feel uncomfortable. We don't have to even say anything. I mean, when somebody at your workplace has a, a work ethic problem, and they know you're a Christian, and they see your work ethic, what's that going to do? When somebody around you in your workspace, when they tell a, a, an off-color joke or a lewd joke, how do they expect you to respond? Now, I'm not saying you have to lash out and criticize and condemn and put them, but I'm just saying, does your presence actually deflect those kinds of things? You see, I think sometimes we're so preoccupied in our own lives about the big things you know we spend a lot of time with abortion and we should and we're spend a lot of time on other issues and we should but what about those day-to-day issues in living out our lives on a day-to-day basis where our lives really count on a one-on-one basis the reality is that some of us have lost our testimony where we work we've laughed at the off-color joke we've told an inappropriate joke ourselves we've used a few choice words that don't reflect our Christianity and our belief in Jesus And so they don't look at us and they're not intimidated at all by their lifestyle. Most of us have embraced it willingly and we live one life on Monday through Saturday and a different one on Sunday morning. And so Jesus says, you are salt. But salt where? Salt of the earth. Notice that he says, you are salt of the earth. You are the salt of the world. You are the hope that I have. Jesus, when he addressed his disciples in Matthew 28, he says in this text, as he's saying goodbye to them, He says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This early on was his great commission to his disciples at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He was getting them ready to go and to be the salt, and to be the light, to be the hope of the world. And the reason why, more than likely, we are not making the impact that we should be making where we live, with our friends, with our relatives, and with our coworkers, and even our neighbors, is because we are not fulfilling our responsibility of the Great Commission and living as salt. For which Jesus then gives us a caution in this text. He knows us well. He knows that even though he extends the call, he knows our humanity, or he knows it's not easy and it's, it's impossible for us to live a perfect life. But if we're not careful in that excuse that we give, no one could be perfect in this wicked, cruel, temp- temptuous world that we live in, then I'm just, gonna, I'm just not even going to try. He says, no, let me give you a caution. You are the salt of the earth. However, but when Jesus uses that word, but, or however, that means that's a, that's a connection there, that's a conjunction in which he's trying to put the two together, and he's saying, you are the salt of the earth. However, let me give you a caution here. However, if the salt, notice it says, has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Here we have, I think, a, a caution. Be careful. Be careful, disciple, not to lose your testimony. Be careful not to lose your witness. Be careful not to lose your effectiveness where you work and where you recreate and where you live. And I'm convinced that one of the main reasons why the church today is not making the significant impact and building disciples as it should is because we have a saltless church. We become too much like the world. Oh, in numbers, we can count the numbers. We're good at the doing, but what did I talk about? We got to go to the becoming first. And we get so wrapped up in the doing that we forget about the becoming. And if we do without becoming, the end result is we will create disciples who are also about working and they never have become anything. And therefore, they're going to stand before Jesus on accountability day and say, but but wait a minute, Lord, what about all this and this and this and this? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Why is that? They got about working, but they never became anything. We're good at making disciples who work, but we live in the church today and give little effort about becoming it all. And it starts there. So let's take a look at the caution of Jesus Jesus says here, there's a decision that we have to make. He says here, if, largest two-letter word you'll ever see in the New Testament. If, that's a condition there, a condition that says that, that it's not automatic. It's a condition here that says we have a choice. It's a condition here that says there's another option. there's another way. We don't have to submit to the world around us. We don't have to yield to its temptations. We don't have to compromise and navigate and negotiate so carelessly and casually and carefully that we lose our identity and our saltiness and our effectiveness and our influence. There's still an option for us. I know the world says that we, we don't have an option. We need to conform. or we're haters. That's not what Jesus just said. He said, "They're going to hate you if you stand up and be counted as my disciple." And he says, "If, notice, not only is there a decision made, but there's a danger, Jesus says that is real. He says, "If salt, notice it says, has lost its taste." has lost its taste. That is a single word in the original language and is in the passive tense. Why is that important? It's in the passive tense. What that means is I have allowed the world to swallow me up. I didn't resist. I yielded. I was passive-aggressive. And I just try to coexist and mingle with the world and not influence or affect or offend anybody or really take a stand. And I'm just kind of trying to be, you know, like I'm a covert operator, so to speak. I'm a super spy. And so I don't make any waves. And eventually what happens is the world just swallows us up and we willingly yield our power and our victory and compromise our saltiness. We just passively did nothing, individually. In other words, somebody told the joke and we didn't say a thing. Somebody invited us to the party and we went and we didn't stand up for what we truly believed. And just embraced us, it just swallowed us up. We were passive about it. It's kind of sad, isn't it? It lost its taste. compromised we were complacent and maybe there was confusion I don't know what my role is pick up the New Testament and read what your role is I think sometimes we have a tendency to believe it's someone else's responsibility, let the pastor do it, the staff do it but you know in that little salt shaker that you're going to be using there are individual little particles that, that are crystals and it's the single parts that make up the whole Every single grain of that salt is uniquely placed where it's supposed to be to make a significant impact and difference, as you are. Notice not only the decision and danger, but notice the decay that's there. Notice the decay. How shall its saltiness be restored? How shall it be restored? That's not a judgment. That's a question. Jesus is not saying you're going to lose your salvation, but he's saying how can you restore yourself back to the original intent and the design of your creator and of your Savior when you were saved? It is possible for sin to be so prevalent in your life that you can lose your effectiveness, you can lose your influence, you can lose your testimony. And many of you today were say, you know, if I were to tell my friend about Jesus, they would laugh because they don't see any difference in the way I live and the way in which they live you'd be right in that because I'm convinced there are many of us who have been guilty of losing our saltiness. But Jesus is not saying that it can't be restored. He's saying that it can be restored. It can be, but it must become salty again if it is to be used. You hear that? If you want to be used by God, and that's a huge question in and of itself. We could take a long time, because I think there are people out there who just don't give a flip whether they're being used by God or not. They're so self-centered and so carnal and so egocentric, they don't really care. All they care about is themselves, me, myself, and I, and my little world and what I want. But a genuine disciple is someone that is sold out for the kingdom. Remember, to be blessed, to be favored, to be honored by God, to say well done, and to be useful to him. And if you want to be useful to him, you've got to return back to the original design in the intent of being salty again. Because unless he, 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 he cleanses you and restores you back to your saltiness, you'll never be used effectively for the kingdom. You know, that, there's some hope in that. Because I don't care how big of a failure you may think you have, you have done, there, there is no condition in which, we sang about it today, that can't be changed they can't be restored there's no sin that you committed that that ever automatically says jesus says i'm done with you Isn't it good aren't you glad i ask aren't you glad some of you say well i'm not as big a sinner as they are yes you are so i say it again aren't you glad okay it's a little better notice there's a destiny to avoid He said, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I looked at that. It is no longer good. What does he mean by that for anything? And I think what he's saying here is not that you can't ever be used again, but he's saying it is no longer good for anything in that you are no longer going to be used for the purpose for which you were designed to be used. In other words, God had a purpose for your life. He had a design that he had for you. He had this wonderful plan, but you're squandering that plan. By living a life of sin. He said, I had all this in mind for you, but you're not living up to your potential. And so, because of that, notice, except there's an exception. In other words, you will still be used by Him, and you can be used by Him, even in sin. My dad used to say, God can hit a, a pretty good lick with a crooked stick. Ever heard that? God can hit a pretty good lick with a crooked stick. I thought about that. Bad theology. Because that helps me understand I can live on my sin and God could still hit a pretty good lick. Well, if I wasn't crooked and, and filled with sin, God could hit a home run every time. Notice, except to be thrown. That's a huge word, thrown. This word thrown is also in the passive. Okay? It's in the passive. What that means is somebody else is doing this to you. It's not a choice you make. It's a choice someone else is making for you. And they're going to pick you up, and they're going to throw you. Who's that person? That person's God. And if you lose your saltiness, God has every right and every authority to pick you up and say, you're not going to be used for that anymore. You're going to be used for that. I have seen countless pastors and ministers who have fallen to many sins, who he has just plucked, and he said, you're no longer going to be used for this. I'll use you over here, but you're not going to be used for that. Cargill is a church fundraising thing. It's filled with pastors who have just, just made many mistakes in their ministry who, who are still being used by God, but not in the original design. Because the reality is there are some failures that we commit that disqualify us at some point. We need to be really careful in how we choose to live our lives. But notice the purpose that he uses them. They are lesser for a lesser purpose to be trampled underfoot. What do you do with salt that goes bad? You take it, throw it on the road so that people going to walk on it and it kills the weeds. It's still useful. But not in the ways that God designed it and desired to use it when he created it. And lastly, notice the direction that we should take. There's a direction that we should take. Back up to verse 13. It says, "How shall its saltiness be restored?" How shall its saltiness be restored? That too is in the passive tense. Here's the beauty about that. The beauty about that is this that we cannot restore our own saltiness. We are dependent upon Jesus to restore our saltiness. We've got to go to another source to make that happen in our lives. You can't restore your own saltiness. No amount of discipline on God's green planet is going to restore your saltiness. Only the Holy Spirit of God, through repentance and confession, can he come and cleanse you of your sin and put you back on your feet again and to restore your saltiness, your effectiveness, your influence. Only he can do that. I'm reminded of Simon Peter in in Matthew chapter 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out of the Mount of Olives, And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Listen to this. Peter answered, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster grows, you will deny me three times. Peter had the audacity to say to him, even if I must die for you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Jesus shortly after that was arrested. The disciples scattered. Simon Peter was the only one who followed those that arrested Jesus as they were taking him to the place in which they were going to interrogate him at a distance in the shadows. He finally made his way into the court, and he found himself next to a campfire. And while he was at the campfire, the lady at the gate who allowed him to come in because she knew that he looked familiar, came up to him, you're one of the disciples. Said, no, I'm not one of the disciples. No way. Wasn't long after that, some of the men surrounding the campfire with him, warming up, said, you're one of the disciples. We can reckon, no, no, I'm not one of the disciples. And then finally, the brother, one of the relatives of the guy who he cut his ear off, Was there by the fire and said, you're one of the disciples of Jesus. He said, no way, man. And as soon as he said that, what happened? The rooster crowed. Guilt set in. He ran. Shame. Disgrace. Jesus didn't leave him there. We learn later on in Mark chapter 16 that when Mary went to the tomb to see Jesus, he told her, go and tell the disciples and Simon Peter hear that and Simon Peter that's huge I don't have time for that I wish I did and then again in Luke chapter 24 we learn that Jesus appears to Simon Peter one-on-one the only disciple that got a one-on-one with Christ It's later on that we see Simon Peter in the book of Acts boldly declaring that beautiful message before those that had been brought after Pentecost had fell. And we see Simon Peter throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament giving influence and being extremely effective as being the salt of the earth that he was designed to be. And I don't know about you, but what that tells me is there's hope for me. So I don't know about you, but I've had some failures and mistakes in my life, haven't you? Haven't you? Haven't you? If somebody hasn't said anything next to you, give them one of those bad looks, those self-righteous looks. You've had some failures and mistakes in your life, haven't you? That's a tough crowd today, man. How do we get back? I'm going to go through these really quickly. What's the commitment? Give me the next slide. I need to recognize my condition. Are you salty? Or have you lost your saltiness? How effective are you in the world that you relate to on a day-to-day basis? Well, I'm not the pastor. That's no excuse, man. Sure, God made some of us to be this and this and that and that, but you're to be effective where you are. You're to have influence where he has placed you. One of the biggest discussions I had on the staff one time, we talked about the call of God. And there were some in, on the staff, they were pastors who disagreed with me. I said, God calls a person to a place for his purpose, for his period of time, with his prophetic message, period. Everyone. They didn't like that. And I know if ministers struggle with a call of intentionality, so do all of us. God is that intentional and you need to recognize the condition in which you are in today and realize the consequence of losing your effectiveness because God wants to do some great things through you. And those consequences are, it not only robs you of opportunity, but it robs others of that opportunity that God would want to use you, speak through you and influence through you for his glory and for his honor. And I wonder how many people are kept out of the kingdom because of the lifestyles of those of us who are saltless rather than salty. Thirdly, we need to repent of every form of corruption, no matter how small and insignificant we may think it is. Number four, we need to receive cleansing. Number five, we need to then reclaim the commission that He gave us, and that commission is to be salt. And then we re-engage with our community to be the salt of the earth. He has called us to go into our community, to influence, to be engaged. Sure, they're hostile. Sure, they don't like us. Sure, they hate us. We, we represent something they, they deplore, they detest. They're not going to be on our side. They're not on our team. They're opponents, actually. Enemies. We need to stop treating them like they're our friends because they're not. I send out a prayer to pastors and I pray for a number of pastors every Sunday morning. I usually get up at five and pray for about 45 minutes for pastors. And and I usually send these guys sort of a general prayer, but I do pray this for each of the pastors. And here's a prayer I sent out today. I'm going to read it to you and we're going to close. Lord, you called us first to be disciples and then as servants, leaders. When you said you are the salt of the earth. You define our identity, our purpose, our objective, and our target as salt. You said we are to be the deterrent to the moral and spiritual purifi- putrefaction of the world and to influence it for good through our lives and our testimony. Cause us to be effective, influencing the people in the world around us today. Rise up within us and raise us up from the decay, depravity, and deception of the world and cause our influence to make a difference today. You cautioned us against losing our saltiness, our effectiveness, and our testimony. With all honesty, we confess our depravity, our self-centeredness, and our carnality. We humble ourselves before you this morning and recognize our condition and we realize what's at stake. There are things we have done that have diluted our effectiveness and have rendered our testimony less effective for your use. We repent of every form of corruption and deviation, and we receive your cleansing by faith in your atoning work on the cross. Cleanse us from the filth and pollution of sin's effect, and wash us white as snow. We stand today in your righteousness. We choose purity, and we will testify of your grace and your truth. Make us salty vessels of honor today for your glory and for your honor. Amen. Could you pray that prayer today? Bow with me.